Tonight on Battleground, how renewable energy projects are tearing communities apart. I revisit New South Wales' largest wind farm development at Rye Park near Yass to see how our once quiet and friendly community has been divided between those who profited from the venture and those who haven't. We'll be talking to another community in the New England region who've decided to shut the gate on the renewable industry and stop negotiating. And I'll be talking to my colleague Freya Leach from the Menzies Research Centre and asking why the vote, vote, the vote on the voice would pass with a huge majority if it was left to the under 35s. I'm Nick Cater, the host of this show, Battleground, streams every Thursday evening on ADH-TV at 8pm Eastern Standard Time. You can watch it live or you can download it, watch it on demand anytime you like. Best way to do that is on the ADH-TV app, which you can download on your smart TV or smartphone. Well, viewers to this programme are all too aware that there are, shall we say, challenges to meeting the government's plucked out of the air emissions targets using wind, solar and hydro alone. Weaning Australia off coal without returning to the Stone Age was always going to be a little more complicated than, say, falling off a log. And at last, this seems to have dawned on the energy minister himself, Chris Bowen. Last month, he told the Australian Business Council in Japan, quote, I completely acknowledge it's a big job with many road bumps in the way. If it was easy, someone else would have done it, close quote. Well, actually, Mr Bowen, there are at least 30 electricity grids around the world that have done it. They are virtually emissions-free. Ontario, for example, managed to kick its coal habit nine years ago. Finland aims to be coal-free by 2029 and would likely get there sooner now that the pressurised reactor is up and running. How did they do it? With nuclear, of course. But Bowen seems to think that's cheating. The size of Boeing's challenge is beyond reckoning. Over the past 12 months, 31% of the electricity in the national electricity market was carbon free. That means we've got just six and a half years to get from 31% carbon free to 82% carbon free. And the hard truth is for Boeing that there are more problems. We are reaching the natural limits of renewable energy. Setting aside the engineering challenge of accomplishing this seven-year plan, the biggest hurdle is the scarcity of land. We're relearning the lesson that broke the hearts of Australia's pioneering farmers in the late 19th century. Even in a country as vast and sparsely populated as this one, you eventually run out of space. Just because, theoretically, we have an unlimited supply of wind and solar doesn't mean that the supply of renewable energy is immune from the problems of economic, the economic problems of constraints, of scarcity. As the US economist Thomas Sowell once wrote, the first lesson in economics is scarcity. The first lesson in politics is to disregard the first law of economics. That's Chris Bowen for you. The political solution to the scarcity problem for politicians at least, is to rob Peter to pay Paul. In the case of renewables, that theft is committed against those who have other uses for the land, like farmers, native people or koalas. Theft and distribution is not, redistribution is not a genuine solution, of course, it's just a political slight. In the end, there have to be trade-offs. The combined effect of the shortage of land and capital means that the sector is fast running out of puff. It's driving the renewable industry industrial complex to colonise the seas. Offshore wind is the next big thing, but it's punishingly costly, technically challenging and environmentally risky. 
Sooner or later, the political class must temper its enthusiasm for renewable energy and accept that the laws of physics and economics are not optional. Chris Bowen must realise that he's the energy minister of Australia, not fairyland. Ultimately, it'll mean the adoption of nuclear energy. The only thing is, how much damage will we commit in the meantime? Nuclear has far less impact on the natural landscapes, it occupies less space, it can be built on brownfield sites such as existing coal-fired power stations, and it's reliable and dispatchable. Well, there are problems, of course, as Mr Bowen likes to point out. Nuclear takes many years to install, but not as many as it will take to build an entire new grid. Small modular reactors have great promise, but they're yet to be commercially proven, that's true. But the technological challenges have been largely overcome, unlike, well, green hydrogen, for instance. Nuclear is the most expensive form of clean energy there is, except for all the others. Now to clean energy's dirty big secret, the huge logistical operation required to transport giant blades up to 90 metres long to turbine developments across the land. Almost every night right now, massive convoys assemble to carry blades from ports to the inland areas, and they're clogging our highways and causing disruption to local communities. This morning I caught up with one such convoy on the Hume Highway near Yass. In Yass, about five to six in the morning, I've had a tip-off that a turbine blade is being transported to Rye Park, one of the biggest wind farms in Australia. I think I've just seen the police cars pass by, which indicates that something's about to happen, I think. These 75-metre blades are on the last stage of their journey from Denmark, where they were manufactured, taken by ship, I believe, to Newcastle. So this is approaching the back end of the convoy now. So this is, you can see the operation here, police cars, front and rear. They've mapped out this route long before. Uh, this is all part of the planning process for the wind farmers. They have to provide details of the route. Where necessary on country roads, it has to, roads have to be, in some parts, widened to accommodate these things. I can see far up ahead, probably about 500 metres down the road, the blade just now making its slow right turn across the highway. The convoy arrives every morning at dawn with the police escort negotiating its way delicately through the narrow lanes that lead to Ride Park. A huge turning circle of heavy duty road has, has been built just for the trucks. They need this area in order to get round the uh, bend with a load almost 100 metres long. It, could, it can't negotiate the 90 degree turn onto Road Ride Park, so this has been built instead. Just watch this. Before the wind turbine development came along, Rye Park was just a quiet rural town with a post office and not much else surrounded by sheep paddocks. Now it's an industrial zone with looming 200 metre turbines in position around the hills. Constructing a, a turbine development on such a huge uh, scale on rugged hilly terrain is a major engineering feat. 
1.5 million two cubic tonnes of cut and fill bulk earthworks works had to be constructed, along with 80 kilometres of access tracks like the one you're looking at here. There were crane hard stands and crane assist pads. All in all, the project uh, just costs uh, around a billion dollars. It includes uh, ex two uh, 330 volt substations, 28 kilometres of transmission lines, eight kilometres of overhead lines and over 90 kilometres of underground cabling. Latest estimate, as I say, of the project, $1 billion. The spin they put on these things is just incredible. 210,000 homes is what Rye Park is supposed to power. Well, build two Rye Parks and you've pretty much covered Canberra. I mean, perhaps we might put up with the industrialisation of the Ass Valley for that purpose. But of course, it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, this is intermittent power number one. It's uh, unpredictable. You need backup. And you're only getting about 25 to 30% of that wind over the year. So 400 megawatts, more like 100 if you're lucky. And then you you don't know when it's coming. I mean, can we have some wind on Thursday, please? Be nice, wouldn't it? You've seen the trees that they've chopped down, right? I have. What was the damage like when you went up? Oh, they were just pushed over and scraped aside. The soil was just left bare. There was no lots of rocks and things. Nothing was there to sort of fill in the bits of better soil or sowing grass. Just stripped. And another was getting back to what Ron was saying about aerials, fertilising. I was talking to a pilot who used to do that, Ted McIntosh, you remember Ted? And he said the turbulence are behind one of those uh, turbines when they're spinning is horrendous in a small plane. And then another factor is fighting bushfires with water bombers. They won't go within a kilometre of a wind farm, wind turbine. It's too dangerous. A, they can't see the blades in the smoke. And again, for this turbulence. And it, look, the turbines themselves are prone to catch fire. We've seen exactly. it. We've seen that, exactly. So, Ron, what's become of the community spirit here? Well, it's just non-existent. Um, yeah. People don't all pull together um, like they used to. If there was something on here, everybody bucked and helped. But now um, it doesn't happen anymore. There doesn't seem to be... Uh, people, there's, there's two factions here, uh, the people that have the wind towers or the people that are affected by the wind towers uh, with not much consultation uh, are getting very irate over what's happening. Um, the towers are going up, we've got to look at them and we've got to listen to them. Uh, and we've got no say in what's happening. And people just don't all pull together like they used to. Um, no, it's a function of all of a year ago or so, and there was a definite division in the hall. All the ones that were for all in the little group, one side of the hall, and on the other side of all the ones that were against it. It's definitely a division, wasn't it? Mm. And uh, yes. it was sad. It never used to be like that before. You know, you'd walk around, chat to everybody, but, oh, I'm not talking to them because, you know, they're the only fun. It's like you've lost half your friends. 
sort of, yes, close yeah. friends for sure. Mm. You, you acknowledge them, you're polite, but you just don't have that bond anymore. It's gone. You know, you just avoid them if you can. So I'm so cross with it, quite honestly. <laughs> you know, you can't say anything, of course. No. no. I just feel, as I said, I feel like they're traitors to our beautiful landscape and to people who are honest, good, hardworking farmers. Mm. I really do. They put money over environment, and that's sad. And money over community spirit. Exactly. Money over community spirit. They don't care. And as I said, a lot of them don't even live here or come for weekends, you know. It's all lauded over the town, and, yeah, we know this and we know that, and then they disappear again, you know. And people like Ron have been here all their life, you know. It's just insulting, I find. Very insulting. That way we've been treated as a community. Yeah. Wind farms actually, early days, had a meeting in the hall, and they were petrified that there was going to be a, a bit of a stir up there, okay. so they brought two big bouncers with them to stand on the door with their little thing on their arm to keep people under control. <laughs> never seen so, anything like this before. So what do you think that does to the community, <laughs> you know, with these yeah. two big fellas standing there at the door? You should never have to put up with things like that. And they even ran their flag up on the Soldier Memorial Hall's flagpole, which is reserved only for the Australian flag, but Tilt ran their flag up there. Tilt's energy. Yeah, didn't ask anybody, just did it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it just, oh, well, we can just take over the place, doesn't matter about you people. That's the attitude. You know, I mean, a lot of people in the city, despite all this, would think that this is a good thing, that, 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 that we need to do it and that, you know, you have to break a few omelettes. Uh, sorry, you have to break a few <laughs> eggs to make an omelette. Yeah. What do you say to that? Yeah, I, you know, we all realise that um, we've got to have renewable energy. Um, but I don't think they've got the answer to it. I think they've got to go back to the drawing board and work out how they can produce energy quickly. Um, these wind towers are going to take years and years to build to get it up to 100% um, uh, renewable energy because of the work that's attached to putting them there. So I think they've got to have another look at different ways of producing electricity. Um, I know coal's pretty dirty, um, but we're probably still tearing coal out of the ground and sending it overseas. So if we're going to do that, why don't we use it here? You know. We need to do, well, the power supply need to go back to the drawing board and work out how they can produce electricity in other ways to make up the void. And if that really comes to nuclear, whether people like it or not, it's carbon free and it's much safer than it used to be. And that's the only track we can go down now, I feel. And stop, I mean, it's like all this, 
cobalt in the blades. Where does that come from? The Congo. Where? Who gets it out of the ground? Slave labour children. Is that good? No. It's time people saw the really dirty side of all this, including the Greens that think it's all green and lovely. Well, it's not. It's black and muddy. Really is. Well, the industrialisation of regional and rural Australia is one of the great unreported stories of our time, hardly touched by mainstream media, and when it is touched, it's done with a, a feather brush. Uh, luckily, since we've begun to take this one up uh, last year, a few people, a few other media companies are now getting into it, and I congratulate the people at Sky News who've been onto this story, realising how critical it is. And we had the report three weeks ago that said that the, the Net Zero Australia report reported that to get to our renewable energy targets, to get to our carbon targets using renewable energy alone, that's wind, solar, hydro, will involve taking up an area of land half the size of the state of Victoria. So what we've seen so far is just the beginning. And since I started to report on this, I've been getting calls and emails from all over the country, up and down, the great dividing range from people who are affected that by this. Uh, I want to go today to John Peefield. John joins me from Urala in, uh, in uh, New England. John, welcome to Battleground. Uh, you're involved there because you, you completely without consultation, you discovered that your area had been designated a renewable energy zone or res by the former uh, treasurer and former environment minister, uh, Matt Keane. Uh, now, the present government, the New South Wales government, is going to carry on with this, this scheme which involves, and you sent me the figures and it's stunning, it's going to involve building 100 square kilometres of solar panels. And just let me check these figures, I don't want to get them wrong, John. 1,500 wind turbines, all within a relatively small area there, all within a 50 kilometre, or mostly within a 50 kilometre radius of where you live, John. This, this must have come to a real shock when this uh, news broke. Yes, it, it was gradual. It started with rumours of uh, solar farms uh, because of the secrecy surrounding the agreements between the developers and, and landholders. And it's grown to, uh, um, they said we'd been allocated uh, uh, six gigawatts of renewable energy. When we drilled down on that, we found that to, to produce six gigawatts of energy required 15 or around 15 gigawatts of wind, solar, hydro, and uh, pumped hydro and battery. And we that translates to somewhere around 1,500 wind towers and 10,000 hectares of solar. And so eight to 900 of those are in a 50 to 60 kilometre radius of Urella. Now, the wind turbines I've been looking at in Rye Park near Yass, now that's 400 megawatts of power, so that's a tiny proportion. That's only a fraction of what you're going to need there. You're going to need many Rye Parks. And the terrain around there, you know, as anybody who's driven up that New England highway will know, you drive up the other side of the Great Dividing Range, you see those magnificent hills where the wind turbines will be. It'll mean a massive intrusion on that area, John, won't it? And all the roadworks that is needed, the, the heavy engineering in order to build hundreds of kilometres of new tracks so that they can get these things up there. Quite apart from the, the turbine blades themselves, the construction is going to just... It'll just turn that area into something that it's never been, a heavy industrial area, won't it? Yeah, 
Absolutely. And then, then you've got the associated transmission lines um, because this area has historically been overcleared. All, all the lower country's been overcleared and we've been trying to plant trees and most of the vegetation is on the higher country and that's going to be severely compromised. That, now, you've been particularly uh, concerned about the transmission lines. You don't think that the state government has been acting fairly. Tell me about it. Well, it's an extension of the uh, wind and solar uh, that th there was absolutely no consultation when it was declared a, a renewable energy zone, absolutely no consultation as to the, as to the building of the transmission lines or the corridors. Uh, absolutely zero, it became a fait accompli. Uh, with the transmission lines, we received a, a notification and then ENCO, who are rolling it out, consulted uh, with us in their terms. They held drop-in sessions. Uh, we went along, but we were told what was happening, just the same as they told us what was happening in terms of installation of wind and solar. And despite many, many of these uh, meetings, and we've called meetings with them, but, but they just have not budged. They have not listened. Mm. So that brought, us, brought, it, brought it all to a head where we've adopted a, a shut-the-gate policy. Yes, now this is interesting. A shut-the-gate policy. What does that mean? Well, it, it basically, basically means that those who... Um, who, who, are, who are following that policy, those of us who are against it, are not, are not going to allow access uh, to, 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 to ENCO onto our land. So you're just not going to negotiate, you're going to say there's going to be no cooperation, you can't come on our land, but what will they, how will they react to that? Have they got powers that can force access to your land, possibly compulsory acquisition? Yes, they have. They have, unfortunately. But we have, we have no option, Nick. We have had no reply whatsoever from Minister Sharp. We've had no, no um, give with ENCO. Everything we've been doing now, it's been going on four or five years. We've just run into a brick wall. So you know, we want a cumulative impact study independently run of New England to, 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 which should have been done initially to see how much renewable energy it could handle and what the resources were and what the effect on uh, agriculture, environment, etc., etc., is going to be. But with this tsunami of developers coming in and signing people up, um, it's just they're just building a case. Without without consequence, with the consequences of the overdevelopment, the massive overdevelopment. So there's been no cumulative impact study, despite the size of this. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it, John? I mean, if you if they were going to widen the the New England Highway, <laughs> great if they did. You know, just extend the verge a bit, extend the hard shoulder. That would meet a major environmental study, but they seem not to have, have the same standards don't apply, do they, when it comes to renewable energy? We, we, don't, we don't, there doesn't appear to have been a study done. I mean, we have very limited resources and we have to extrapolate. But 
it, it, the New England Highway simply can't handle that sort of traffic. I think uh, you've got the figures there. I think 4,500 oversized, overweight uh, vehicles bringing the components for the uh, turbines up. Um, I mean, Musselbrook Council realised the problem. They've objected to one of the wind farms here, ju just one of them, because they realised that everything goes by Newcastle through Musselbrook and, and they're, they're going to have to heighten their overpass to get any blades through at all. But the government seems to be asleep at the wheel as far as, as, as the monster they've created. It's a, it's an it's an industrial revolution that's occurring, John, and it's affecting vast swathes of inland Australia, particularly up and down the Great Dividing Range, and nobody seems to be paying any attention whatsoever. I mean, do, do you feel abandoned? Do you feel ignored by your fellow Australians and by the government? We feel, we feel that the the bush has been shafted by Macquarie Street. Um, when, when this was designed, it, it, there was no regard for people or place or agriculture or environment. You know, they're destroying the environment to supposedly save the environment. If you, Australia's got something like 5% of arable land and if you overlay from, from North Queensland to Southern Victoria, if you, if you overlay the renewable energy industrialisation, it sits right over most of that 4% of arable land. So, you know, we have food food production, fibre production, all being compromised. It, it, it just hasn't been thought. It's just following the lines of the, the old transmission lines but rebuilding new ones. Yeah, yeah. It's the same picture up and down the country, John, and people like you fighting brave, lonely battles against this. Tell me, what effect has this had on the community of Urala? It's absolutely divided all the little communities. Uh, Red Four, which stands, Red Four New England, which is the organisation I'm part of, stands for Responsible Energy Development for New England. And we represent uh, 11 small, com small communities that are being impacted originally by wind and solar without consultation and now having the transmission lines coming through and it's it, it's divided it, it, it's divided the community into hosts and non-hosts, and the hosts, of course, have signed up for the money, but they are in the minority of the community because the majority of the community uh, are, are impacted by it, having their land values, their lifestyle, their agriculture all affected. Um, and it's divided families as well. It, it it it'll never be the same again, particularly around Walker, uh, which is. Uh, Walker is to the east of Urala and that's massively, the Walker Plateau is massively impacted and the community there are, are at war. Mm. The haves and the have-nots, yeah. Well, yeah, John, exactly. John, we'll keep in touch with you. Please keep in touch with us. Uh, we'll get up there at some stage and, and film it on the ground. But it seems to be their strength in numbers and if other communities up and down the country would to follow your example and to lock the gate, if, if every community affected was to do that, I think it would have a massive impact on the government and perhaps, just perhaps, they might think again. Good luck, John. We, All we, the best. We can only hope and I, I, I look forward to showing you around. Thank you. Look forward to coming. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. It's almost exactly a year since the Prime Minister 
went to the Gama Festival in the Northern Territory and formally promised that there would be a referendum on Aboriginal recognition, recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, tied to a voice to Parliament. He expressed the view at the time that this would be a unifying moment for Australians. Well, we don't have the date yet. The referendum is still probably two to three months away, but one thing I will predict with certainty, it will not be a unifying moment. The latest polling from Newspoll suggests now that the no vote is at 46%, yes vote at 43%, and of course that crucial test, it must have a majority in a majority of states. It doesn't have that. The voice is behind in every state except New South Wales and Victoria where it's tied. But here's the interesting thing. If you go further into the news poll and look at the demographics, you can see the lines on which the country is, is, is split. It reminds me very much of the Brexit referendum in the UK, where it was mainly the people in, metropoli people in the metropolitan centres, London or in the university towns, younger people who voted to remain in Europe. It was provincial Australia, Margaret Thatcher's heartland, uh, which voted to leave. A similar thing's happening here. Now, if we go to gender, uh, no, we'll go to age. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, the 65 pluses, uh, I won't say which bracket I'm in, by the way, but the 65 pluses, uh, a resounding, resounding no, 64 to 28. 54 to 64, uh, still a resounding no, 54 to 28. That's 50 to 64. 20, 35 to 49, uh, here, when you get down to the younger voters, the yes votes ahead, 42 to 40, 47 to 42. That's the 35 to 49s. You might roughly call that the millennials. Then let's get down to Gen X, Gen Z. I do apologise. Gen Z. This is the 18 to 34 bracket in the news poll. And they are 62% in favour of the voice. In other words, if we said only people under the age of 35 could vote in this referendum. In fact, if we said only people under the age of 49 could vote in this referendum, it would be a resounding success. Well, joining me now is somebody in that Gen Z bracket uh, who I believe won't be voting yes to the referendum, my colleague at the Menzies Research Centre, Freya Leach, the Director of Youth Policy at the Menzies Research Centre. Welcome, Freya, for joining me on Battleground. Thank you for having me, Nick, and that's quite a good prediction. I, in fact, will not be voting yes, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I guess that because you've made three, three uh, TikTok videos. Mm -hmm. uh, I've yet to understand. I don't have TikTok in my phone, but you showed me. Uh, they're very impressive. Now, but what impressed me here, three videos on why you are voting no, as a Gen Z person, and um, you had a lot of reaction. Tell me, how many views have you had on the last one? So on the last one, I had 300,000 views, and over the collection of three, I've had about a total of 800,000. I've gained over 2,000 followers. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty incredible the impact that these videos have had. And when you think about the niche um, of Australians, young Australians who are on TikTok and who are watching videos about political content, getting 800,000 views in that very 
narrow niche in the scheme of things is, is pretty good penetration um, of the total market. And I can actually look at the analytics on the videos as well. And from the analytics, I can see that 80% of my audience is under the age of 24 right. and 60% of my audience is female. So age and gender are the two greatest predictors of voting yes. So the fact that I've had this much um, positive feedback is quite incredible. Maybe there are some hidden no voters out there, uh, but it does give me a bit of hope for Gen Z. Well, let's take a look at it now, if Charlie can get it up. The third reason I'm voting no to the voice to parliament is because I cannot stand what this is saying about Australia. We're a country where it shouldn't matter if your family's been here for six years, for 60 years, or 60,000 years. You're equal, you have equal rights, and you have equal value in our country. That is Australia. That's what makes our country so unique, so prosperous, and so just. But what The Voice is saying is, hang on a second, it does matter. If you happen to have been born into a family that can somehow trace its ancestry back to Australia 60,000 years ago, you get special rights. You get a special voice. Unlike the rest of us that just get one vote, you get a special additional representation to Parliament. Now to me, that is so unfair and it is unegalitarian. And this is what really gets me. Labor always talks about the fact that we're all equal. They want equality. Well, where's equality now? Where's the equality between races when you are trying to have a special voice for one race while leaving out everybody else in the country? Democracy, one vote per person, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, that is equality. This idea that we have a special voice for a certain race, that is not. And that is what the voice is. It's going to divide us by race. Something that we've been fighting against as a society for about 100 years. And now we're going to regress. This is not progress. This is regressive. Back into a, a country where certain races get certain privileges over others. To me, that is so un-Australian and I cannot possibly understand why anybody thinks that this is, this is moral or just. I want to live in a country where it doesn't matter how long your family happens to have been here. You're equally valued, you get equal rights. And that's why I'm voting no to The Voice. Okay, well Freya, there we go. It's very... <laughs> A very compelling case you make, certainly for me, uh, but apparently you're making this a compelling case for your, your own age bracket. Mm. But let's, let's look at that. News poll is, is, is pretty reliable on these issues. It's probably the most reliable poll in the country on these kind of major issues. So let's take that at face value. 62% of your cohort uh, are going to vote uh, no, uh, sorry, 62% mm. are going to vote in favour yes. of it. You're amongst that uh, smaller group, the 27% um, who roughly a quarter, a bit more than the quarter, who are voting no. Mm -hmm. Why is it that there is such, do you think your generation, from the people that you know, why are they so uh, much more in favour of the voice to parliament than... Uh, 
us crusty old people? <laughs> well, I think it comes down to two main dynamics. The first one is young people are generally more progressive. That Throughout time, that's been the case. And so that's not really surprising that in this referendum, the main bulk of yes voters would congregate around the younger um, ages. But I think the second dynamic, and this is particularly interesting, is just the messaging that they're receiving. So 23 of Australia's 41 universities have formally pledged support for The Voice. So a massive amount of young people going to universities every day where they are being bombarded with pro-voice messaging and material. And then you have the added dynamic that on social media, it is saturated by the left. Uh, if you want to compare the proportion of yes videos being put out compared to no votes, no videos being put out on TikTok, I think you'd be looking at a three to one ratio, if not more. And so those two dynamics, the naturally progressive leaning views of young people combined with just the amount of money and, and big institutions pushing for the yes vote, uh, just mean that, I mean, it's a remarkable that 37% of young people are going to vote no, to be honest. <laughs> Mm. Well, perhaps this helps account for the popularity of your uh, TikTok videos. If, if the overwhelming uh, number of videos uh, for that generation are in favour of The Voice, mm. you've fulfilled a niche market there. You've spotified a scarcity, a shortage <laughs> in the market. So uh, an entrepreneurial thing. Look, you're right about university. So 55% of people who go to university are voting yes, mm. as compared to 42% at TAFE and 37 who've got no tertiary education. So, uh, of course, they say, well, that's because we're the educated ones, but we know better than, better than that. Just going mm -hmm. to university doesn't make you wise, of course. The other uh, interesting dynamics, if you're richer, you're more likely to vote for The Voice. But there's a couple here I just wanted to run past you. First of all, religion. If uh, 42, sorry, 38% of people who say they are Christian will vote uh, yes, and 53 will vote no. So overwhelmingly Christians vote, vote voting in favour of this, or by a, by a majority at least. If you go to those with no religion, opposite. So no, no religion people are voting for the voice, not against it. And then, and I'll, you've got to explain this one to me, when you go down to home ownership, the, if you own your home outright, uh, if you, or if you're on a mortgage, then you will vote no, according to this, uh, they're, they're in favour of no. But renters, people who rent their accommodation are in favour of the voice 51 to 37. So explain, let's put all those things together. Renting, university education and religion. What's mm. going on there? Well, to start with the religion one, I actually discussed not this specific uh, topic in one of my TikTok videos, but, but I think it's the principle that's captured here. One of the things I said was that the voice actually violates the fundamental principle that all Australians are equal. Whether you've been here for six years, 60 years, 60,000 years, it doesn't actually matter. In Australia, because we're a liberal democracy, everybody has equal rights and equal value. Now, if I had to posit a guess as to why people with a faith were more likely to vote no, it's because they understand and grasp uh, that, that fundamental concept of equality between all people. Uh, and that's, you know, in Judeo-Christian values, that's, that's been one of the, the cornerstones um, of the sort of moral code and, and why it's even 
present in our society today. We've inherited a lot of that sense of equality between people from our Judeo-Christian heritage as a society. And so I think that is probably informing a lot of religious people's votes. There is an understanding that, um, hang on a second, we're all created equal, we all have equal value, and the voice is, is violating that fundamental belief about the nature of all human beings. And once you do that, it's a slippery slope as to where that goes. And the second dynamic, so the, the home ownership versus renters divide, I think partly it can come down to this idea of aspiration and that, that the system is not rigged. So people who've been able to own a home, they've been able to save up, accumulate enough capital to get their foot um, in the door of their own home. And I think that gives them, one, a greater stake in our country, but two, more optimism about the ability of people to really lift themselves up. Because it's not easy to save for a home. We know that. That's what we're told all the time. Housing affordability is really, really difficult. But if you have been able to do that, uh, I think it gives you a sense of hope and, and optimism that people, when they work hard, can achieve. Yeah, and uh, I think that all that sounds... Very good analysis to me. I, I, I find nothing I can quarrel with. I, I make one further point, though. I mean, Greens voters, um, and I noted this uh, more than 10 years ago in the book I wrote, that, that, that you, there is a, a close correlation between electorates that vote Green or inclined to vote Green and electorates with no religion. Mm. Uh, that interested me. Uh, it leads to the suggestion that maybe Greens is actually their religion. Uh, but, and, but you're finding, of course, now with renters, uh, overwhelmingly Greens voters are renters, and the Greens are appealing to this by saying they want to cap rents. Uh, you've studied a bit of economics, you've read a bit of Hayek. What do you think about the idea of capping rents, putting a limit on rents? Would that help homeowners, do you think? It's not what I think about it. Can you find a single credible economist that actually supports it? I can't. I don't think anybody can. I mean, don't take my word. Take every single other economist's word on this. I think the idea that we should cap rents is absolutely ludicrous. It's populism at its finest, which is all the Greens really are for Gen Z and millennials. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's all going to backfire because who is going to invest in property uh, and actually build the houses required to house the people that need houses if rents are being capped and they can't make any money from it? And furthermore, anybody who currently does have a property that they're renting out, won't they just take it off the rental market and use it as an Airbnb or just leave it vacant and get the capital gains? This solves absolutely nothing. It is just the epitome of short-sighted populism by the left that appeals to young people and they actually prey on young people's ignorance in this sense and lack of economic literacy because nobody thinks this is a good idea. Uh, finally, Freya, you, your videos are nothing but respectful, opinionated but respectful and, and there's a, a bit of a, a smile in your face and, it, you know, they're great. But the same is not true of a lot of the content on this subject, is it? I mean, I saw Michael Carton the other day tweet that uh, a message to the effect that the, the, the reasons for voting no in this random was, was either just pure political self-interest that you supported Peter Dutton and you were politicising this or that you were irredeemably racist, or that you were stupid. He wouldn't mm. allow any other possibility. I, I, that's not a, a characteristic of your 
uh, contribution to this argument, but do you think that those who are pushing this line more likely to be from the left and more likely to be n no uh, yes voters, the, the people who are disrespectful online? Well, I just find it really saddening because if we're to actually move forward as a country and genuinely make efforts to close the gap, we have to all do it from a position of wanting the best outcomes for all Australians. And I think as soon as that belief in, um, in everyone's desire to do what's right uh, starts being eroded, public debate just descends into vitriol and, and rhetoric like this, which is really saddening. I think we need to see both sides of the debate as human because they are. And people on the yes side also have good intentions. There are some amazing people that are campaigning for the yes vote. And equally, there are some amazing people that are campaigning for no. But we have to remember what actually unifies us as a country is the desire to see Australia be the most just and most prosperous society we can be. And people will take different views as to how that's actually achieved. But as soon as people start losing sight of that and start descending into accusations of racism and partisanship, well, I think that that's seriously under threat and it makes me really sad. Well, as you know, Freya, from our past conversations, I'm not a great fan of TikTok, that, to put it mildly. It is a, an arm of the People's Republic of China. It's an arm of the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese Communist government. I don't like it. But since you're on, please tell us how people can find your TikTok videos. <laughs> I'm well aware of your views, Nick, but what I say is that, look, it doesn't matter. If we're not on there, that's fine. Young people just won't hear our message. So it's a bullet we have to bite, unfortunately. Um, but if you do want to watch my TikToks, you can find me at Freya Leach on TikTok. Uh, not a very common name. I'll pop up. Thanks, Freya. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Well, that's just about it for this week. My thanks to all those good people in Rye Park for their hospitality, and I wish you all the best in trying to get some accountability from Tilt Energy. And the same goes for the people in New England. Lock the gate. Let's see how that goes. All the best with that strategy. My thanks to the team here at ADH TV, to Charlie and the rest of the team, to the team at uh, Menzies Research Centre. Most of all, thank you for watching.